0: Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan.
1: I'm Catherine Brobeck.
0: And it's time to visit the mysterious Mr. Quinn and his friend, Mr. Satterthwaite. We are both big fans of this series at this point in this story, which is the final Within the mysterious Mr. Quinn collection, Catherine Brobeck, what are we discussing? And can you give us a little bit of the publication history on this tale?
1: Well... As sad as I am, Kemper, and as difficult as this will be, uh, we are, in fact, discussing the last of the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection, and it is called Harlequin's Lane, appropriately enough, and it was first published in May 1927 in the Storyteller magazine in the UK, in August 1927 in Flynn's Weekly in the US, and, of course in The Mysterious Mr. Quinn in April 1930, in the UK by Collins and Sons, and later in that year in the US by Dodd Mead.
0: In The Storyteller, it was the sixth and final of that Magic of Mr. Quinn series. And Mm -hmm. um, as will become obvious, this does feel like a final story (laughs) in this collection. But I will note, and I have noted this before because it warms my heart, and I imagine it will many listeners, we are not quite done with Mr. Quinn after this story because there are two uncollected Mr. Quinn stories. Mm-hmm. So this does represent an end of sorts but very much in keeping with Mr. Quinn himself. Yeah, that he doesn't he's never quite really disappear.
1: Gone. I know. <laughs> he's I know. here
0: there and everywhere at all times. Let's jump right into this final story within the collection. And talk about our victim by way of talking about no one, because this is a super weird story, even by Mr. Quinn standards. And
1: oh, definitely even by Mr. Quinn standards.
0: Yeah, this is crazy pants. That is the technical term for this story. It's a crazy pants story. That is the subgenre in which it exists. And we would be spoiling a lot of things if we tried to even pinpoint a victim for the story. So let's just move right along over that category and the next we can't really really talk about suspects either. So, Catherine Brobeck, tell us about the world as it appears to be.
1: So, our dear Mr. Satterthwaite is staying at Ashmead, the country house of John Denman and his wife Anna. And he has basically no idea why he's staying with these people. He finds them Absolutely frightful bores. He met them on the Riviera, and somehow he just finds himself driving his rolls out to their country house on occasion, but he never really knows why. (laughs) Denman essentially drones on and on and on about mundane things. Anna has zero personality. She is this stoic, hard Russian woman who Denman saved from the revolution and married, And basically the only interesting thing about them or their house is that in the sitting room, Anna has a ridiculously fancy Chinese lacquer screen.
0: (laughs) It's just so Mr. Quinn that there is intrigue surrounding a fancy Chinese lacquer screen in an otherwise lackluster English country house with lots of hepple-white
1: furniture. Yeah, good (laughs) hepple-white
0: furniture. I'm intrigued. This is why I love these stories. What's going on with this lacquer screen? So while the Denmans are out one day, Mr. Satterthwaite goes for a stroll, as he does, where he happens across a charming gated lane surrounded by hedges, the sign for which reads, Ashmead Harlequins Lane. Uh, By the way, I mean... At this point, I feel like I'm getting repetitive bringing up Agatha Christie's love for her childhood estate, Ashfield. Right, But this is the closest yet that we've gotten as a reference to that house with Ashmead. She's practically (laughs) called it the same thing so i know in any case um this is harlequin's lane sort of in the back of of ashmead and you know naturally that gets his attention because we are in a mysterious mr quinn story and he wanders down the lane where he immediately runs into this is going to come as quite a shock but (laughs) mr harley quinn is sauntering (gasps) down
1: surprise
0: harlequin's lane he is also staying at ashmead as it turns out. But this is in fact his lane. He is the owner of Harlequin's Lane, makes makes a lot of sense. And it makes even more sense that Harlequin's Lane is often known locally by its nickname, Lover's Lane. Of course, Mr. Harley Quinn is a great champion of many, a would-be or seemingly doomed pair of lovers who he likes to bring together for a happy conclusion. So this is all just sort of humming along and making a lot of sense. And Mr. Satterthwaite and Mr. Quinn continue on their stroll until they reach the end of the lane. And there they see a little bit shockingly a big old rubbish heap that is right. overlooked by a crumbling cottage. It's all very sort of, of wasteland-ish. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, right. Especially um, because the lane, the lane is such like a charming hedgerow, right?
0: Yeah, I That's imagine cool. it as if like we, yeah, we're in a charming sort of English country lane. We can see the estate in the background. It's all very idyllic. And then, you know, maybe because of the reference to the Russian Revolution, I do associate Agatha Christie somewhat with World War I. I just think of The Trenches, just a, a horror. It ends in a horror show.
1: Right, and like the real tragedy is this like crumbling cottage, right? Which Mr. Quinn then notes that it wasn't always crumbling. And in fact, once upon a time, the Denmans themselves had lived in the house um, before moving into the manor house uh, when its occupants, you know, passed away. And then after that, slowly the end of the lane began to turn into a trash heap. And then Mr. Satterthwaite quotes Oscar Wilde's The Happy Prince and says, Bring me the two most beautiful things in the city, said God. And it's left to sit there. And I don't know, Kemper, what is your memory of The Happy Prince? Because we think of Oscar Wilde as a sort of arch person, playful with language, etc. Not necessarily aimed at children, but essentially he wrote a book of fairy tales.
0: Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Oscar Wilde on the importance of being earnest, ideal husband, definitely not children's fairy tales. But yeah, I was not expecting an Oscar Wilde reference in this story, but... No,
1: and it's, it's also not at all um, specified where it's coming from.
0: No, so, I know. It's, it's very stealth.
1: Right, and I mean, if anybody doesn't know what the story of the Happy Prince is, it's essentially a fairy tale about a statue of a well-loved happy prince who only only in statue form, can look down upon his city and see the sorrow and poverty of the people in it. And he asks an abandoned sparrow, or swallow, maybe? One or the other. Somebody (laughs) will correct us. And um, the swallow essentially picks apart pieces of the statue to give to the people of the city that he never saw before. Until finally... He's picked apart, and the winter grows cold, and the sparrow or swallow dies, and the um, statue is pulled down into a rubbish heap. And only when it's all burned into a furnace, God asks an angel to bring the sort of two most beautiful things in the city. And the angel brings to God the body of the sparrow and the lead heart of the statue.
0: Right, which wouldn't melt, right? It it like they right. melted all the other pieces, but that was the one thing that was left of this right. statue.
1: Yeah, and so I mean it's a really really specific and odd reference to put here.
0: Yeah. It all sounds to me a very giving tree esque.
1: Uh, soup. No, I'm super giving right? tree. Yes, it's
0: like sacrifice everything for others, think nothing of yourself, and you will thereby find the ultimate, not even happiness, because happiness apparently isn't the answer, but salvation, right?
1: Right. Although, man, giving tree is just like that poor Oof, tree.
0: That poor tree. Well, the giving tree is just so much more problematic because this is the idea of, of sacrificing at least for the greater good. And that well, is, it's not it, only
1: that, but it's it's a partnership of it, right? The swallow and the statue are they're working both. hand
0: in hand, yeah. and like both sacrificing themselves. The statue, very literally, and the swallow, you know, its time and ultimately its life because it dies doing this for the social ills that they see, and then ultimately, kind of God's glory, right? Like it's a very overtly religious. I mean, the story ends with God speaking, so it's an overtly religious story. Also, again, not typical Oscar Wilde, but. Um, Um, Yeah, The Giving Tree just gets a little icky, I think, for most people, especially having imbibed it without questioning it as children when you realize that this is about the sacrifice of one character completely and wholly for another and just how idealized that is. And it's just the inequity of it is really, really troubling.
1: I mean, I will be honest that you see some metaphors in The Giving Tree to motherhood.
0: I think saying it's a metaphor for motherhood is kind. I mean, I let's just say there's a really easy feminist reading yes. of The Giving Tree. The boy is the boy and uh, it's not a super hard stretch to think of The Giving Tree as a female persona of some sort.
1: <laughs> yeah. Don't think we
0: go here, but there Yo. you go.
1: <laughs> Children's literature has depths that it often does not get enough credit for.
0: Yeah. What it's making clear is at the very least that there is more than meets the eye to both the lover's lane and the rubbish heap at the end of it. And already on, you know, in in my copy, like five pages in to this story, I'm feeling like we are not that we are not in uh, the sort of physical space that we usually are in an Agatha Christie short story. And even in most of the Mr. Quinn short stories, this is beginning to feel symbolic, like openly symbolic and metaphysical and bizarre, even for a Mr. Quinn story. So, you know, Mr. Quinn and Mr. Satterthwaite are jawing away here in Lover's Lane, and a girl turns the corner and comes into sight. And she is Molly Stanwell, who tells them that the Denmans have been at a rehearsal. Because you see, they are hosting a lavish performance of Catherine. Can you guess? Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, I guess I'm going to have to. Is it the Harlequinade?
0: (laughs) It is indeed the Harlequinade. This is not the first time that we have come across a reference this overt to the Harlequinade, although it was in a Poirot short story, The Affair of the Victory Ball, which we covered uh, a bit ago. Very, very early uh, Poirot short story. Might have been one of the very first ones, actually. In any case, Molly will be singing as Pierrette. And a Mr. Manley, love that name, mm-hmm. <laughs> will be performing as Piero. And then there are two professional dancers who are coming from London to dance as Harlequin and Columbine. And, you know, we do know that there are those two other more comedic characters, right? Are they ever mentioned? I guess not. I don't think so. You know, these are sort of the main couples, certainly within the Harlequinade, which we know well at this point. And um, the music has been composed by the modernist Claude Wickham, who is being sponsored by the village's benevolent, quote unquote, fat Jewess. Yep, we have some of that
1: Well, that's not good.
0: Yeah, some of that unfortunate casual anti Semitism that we come across in these stories particularly, but in others as well, in some of the novels. Her name is Lady Rosheimer. She has a penchant for young men of the artistic persuasion, such as Mr. Claude Wickham.
1: Her husband just you know likes her to be happy, so lets her throw money at young artistic men to come down to the estate. So Wickham, Molly, the Dunmans, Mr. Quinn is there, although you really wouldn't know it. Um, and Mr. Satterthwaite, because are sitting around earth. Wait,
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. But this happens again. I remember you, you noticing that in the last Mr. Quinn story we covered. Even though, yes, technically, other characters interact with, with Mr. Quinn. It always seems like when they're in a group that Mr. Quinn recedes into the background.
1: Yeah, he's not a character in these scenes.
0: We've been making jokes about this for, you know, the entire run of these stories, but it is fair to say that that Christie is at least hinting at the idea that Mr. Quinn really is just one facet of Mr. Shatterthwaite himself.
1: Right. So they're sitting around for this afternoon tea. Wickham um, is trying to pick Anna's brain about Russian ballet because she's a Russian. And she basically says she has no opinion, because once upon a time she was a dancer, but she never watched ballet, and she doesn't care. And Satterthwaite jumps in because he has thoughts about all the arts, as we know. Of course he does. Cultural cultural connoisseur that he is. And, uh, namely how one of the greatest tragedies of the Russian revolution, if not perhaps the greatest tragedy of the Russian revolution (laughs) is that they apparently killed their greatest ballerina of all time, Carcinova.
0: I think Nicholas and Alexandra might've had something to say about that. I mean, you know,
1: (laughs) uh, probably a lot of people might've had some thoughts, you know? So Carcinova, there's even a statue for her in, in a museum in Berlin. And Satterthwaite saw her in several performances. He was lucky enough. And, you know, she was one of the most brilliant ballerinas in Europe. And Anna notes that she actually trained under Carsonova before the revolution. And the party disbands more or less after tea. Uh, Wickham leaves, Molly leaves, and Satterthwaite and Mr. Quinn, they're left alone with the Denmans who begin to argue about the performance.
0: Awkward. Very awkward. (laughs) So Satterthwaite unfortunately has to witness uh, Denman first noting that Molly is pretty. Anna then notes that she is a clumsy dancer, to which Denman takes great umbrage. Then Mr. Denman notes that the dancers are on their way down, being driven by a Prince Oranoff. That would be Sergius Oronoff. And Mr. Denman is immediately alarmed that Anna very clearly seems to know him, which Anna acknowledges. This Prince Oronoff was always a fan of dance, after all, and we do know that Anna was a dancer. So Mr. Denman leaves, and he's just annoyed that there seems to be some sort of a history between his wife and this Prince Oranoff character, Mr. Quinn leaves as well, even though, again, we really haven't heard from him very right. much. And
1: it's more like, wait, he was still in the room?
0: Yeah, exactly. You're like, okay, sure. We're pretending that Mr. Quinn exists? Sure, sure, cool. Cool. Then um, Anna crosses to the telephone asks for a number, and Mr. Satterthwaite is about to leave, like the other two men. I'm sure he, at this point he's desperate to get out of the room, but she arrests him with a gesture. And she asks for Lady Rosheimer, and she wants to know if Prince Aronoff has arrived yet. Yeah, she's just sort of acting out, almost, or, or just trying to almost reconnect, I think, with the prince as soon as possible to spite her husband. And this is how she learns that there has been a terrible accident. And the male dancer, who was going to dance as Harlequin, has had his arm broken. The female dancer, who was to be Columbine, is bruised and shaken. Uh, Fortunately, Prince Oronoff himself is relatively unharmed.
1: Which, like, she makes a bunch of jokes about, like, oh, ha-ha, after all this time, he's still such a terrible driver. Anyway... This prompts Anna to have this very intense conversation with Mr. Satterthwaite. A, sort of about how they both know Mr. Quinn. Everything is sort of left ambiguous in this entire conversation. So it's a little bit hard to paraphrase what's going on here. She says, well, you know what Mr. Quinn is. And Satterthwaite's like, do I? Then, you know, she starts to talk about what very much appears to be the idea of fate. And essentially says to Satterthwaite, Have you ever had these experiences in your life when you think that something needs to happen and then something happens and it all seems to be put in place for a reason? Russian accent gets heavier throughout all this, which Satterthwaite notices. Mm -hmm. And the reason she's kept him there is because she is aware of him being the kind of person who seems to know everything. She believes that he will understand what she's talking about even though she's not directly specifying what she's talking about. So Satterthwaite's going to respond to her to talk about faith, but she leaves first. And so they have this very long conversation that's really not talking about anything, but also talking about everything.
0: It is curious because Satterthwaite, he doesn't he doesn't completely engage in the, almost in the way that we expect him to about who Mr. Quinn is, and he's he almost can't go there because he knows that, <laughs> it's like he's he finally has to face up to the fact that something weird is going on with Mr. Quinn, but he can't quite do it yet, and right. because he can't, they can't sort of reach the level on which Mrs. Denman wants to discuss Mr. Quinn and the mysteries of life and existence, as it were. So, right. it's like a truncation an extended yet truncated conversation that begins and ends abruptly and oddly, but is also quite necessary, I think, for the telling mm-hmm. of the story. We're not right. saying that it's that is pointless by any means.
1: No, and it's kind of dramatic in a number of ways. Oh, yeah. It's just it's, it's a very hard to talk about it without just reading it out because it's so odd.
0: Yeah, I mean, I will read one passage from it, which I particularly appreciated when they're talking about Mr. Quinn. He is, she paused. Her eyes met Mr. Satterthwaite's. I think you know what he is better than I do, she finished. I? Is it not so? He was troubled his neat little soul found her disturbing. He felt that she wished to force him further than he was prepared to go, that she wanted him to put into words that which he was not prepared to admit to himself. You know, she said, I think you know most things, Mr. Satterthwaite. Here was incense, yet for once it failed to intoxicate him. He shook his head in unwanted humility. What can anyone know, he asked, so little, so very little." some, dare I say, beautiful writing. Yeah. Well done, Agatha. Moving on. Later at dinner, we sort of then cut (laughs) to dinner time, and Prince Oronoff has arrived. Mr. Satterthwaite is introduced to him. Mrs. Denman also reveals at that point that they are, in fact, not going to call the performance off, even though these professional dancers cannot perform since they were just in a car accident. So instead, Anna herself, who we know used to be a dancer, will play Columbine, And who could possibly be playing Harlequin Catherine?
1: Oh, dear.
0: The mysterious Mr. Harley Quinn is at long last actually playing the character of Harlequin. We have been waiting for this moment for so long. It is finally going to happen. Of course, Mr. Denman is appalled. We might be a little appalled, too. It seems like Satterthwaite is mildly appalled or at least taken aback.
1: Well, I mean, he's basically like, I didn't know you were a dancer. <laughs> yeah. And Mr. Quinn is like, wow, shrug.
0: But hey, it seems like it's happening.
1: Yeah, so as they walk over as a group to the Rousheimer house for the performance, Satterthwaite notes to Mr. Queen that something has come over Anna when she's with Prince Oronoff. Clearly, they must have been meant to be together. Like, all of a sudden, this woman who he's known for a number of years, who had zero personality, is sparks. There are sparks there, and she's engaged and like a different person. And it has to be part of this thing with Prince Oronoff. And, you know, Denman saved her from Russia, but it's nothing compared to what she's like with Prince. And Mr. Quinn basically stops him in his tracks and implies, are you sure that's what's going on here? And Mr. Satterthwaite is like, well, yeah, I mean, I've seen this. And essentially Mr. Quinn, he doesn't actually do this, but essentially he takes Mr. Quinn by the shoulders and turns him around (laughs) to spin him in the other direction and look into the dark lane. Because in the dark lane, John Denman is canoodling with Molly to the point where there's like a lot of touching and like, don't leave me. Oh, I won't leave you. Don't leave me. I won't leave you. Kind of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Quinn and Mr. Satterthwaite just stand there and watch in real horror. As this is going, or, Well, I mean, Mr. Quinn just stands there, but Mr. Satterthwaite is very horrified.
0: Yeah, there's apparently a lot going on here. We thought maybe we had a, a love triangle. We know Christy loves her love triangles, but there's at the very least a quadrangle happening here. Yep. <laughs> so we get a long description of the performance itself. And when Columbine, i.e. Anna Denman, takes the stage, Mr. Satterthwaite is dumbfounded because... He doesn't just recognize his hostess, Mrs. Denman, he recognizes who she in fact is. And we probably should have seen this coming. Because this isn't a puzzle mystery, we're not gonna have clues. But I would argue this is the only quasi-clue here: that the casual mention of a world-famous, presumed-to-be-dead, pre-revolutionary ballerina, Carcinova, you know, is just dropped in there along with the information that Mrs. Denman used to be a dancer. Guess what? She is, of course, Carcinova the prima ballerina uh, of Russia. And uh, Mr. Satterthwaite knows it. And there's this, you know, I say this with all the affection that we approach these stories with, but my eyes were rolling hard when he kneels down and takes her hand, you know, Mm -hmm. and wait, where is it? It's really funny. Mr. Satterthwaite is, is seeking out Mrs. Denman, a.k.a. Madame Carsonova after the performance. And he finds her sitting on a stone seat under a cypress tree. When he came up to her, he did an odd thing. He knelt down and raised her hand to his lips. Ah, she said, you think I danced well? You danced as you always danced, Madame Carsonova. She drew in her breath sharply. So, you have guessed. There is only one carcinova. No one could see you dance and forget. But why? Why? And we will get into why, won't we, Catherine?
1: We will. Although, maybe in not as deep of a regard as I would wish, actually. (laughs) So, Prince Oronoff has also found them in this, like, same moment post-performance. And Anna looks up at him and says, You know what? I will meet you at the end of the lane in 10 minutes.
0: Mm. And
1: right. And he is delighted, and she is dead set on this. And Satterthwaite looks at her, and, you know, he essentially tries to intervene and says, you know, her husband's looking for her. And that somehow some old spark seemed to light up watching her on stage. And Anna's like, uh huh. Yeah, for that moment when I was on stage, sure. Basically, what she says is that for 10 years, she was with the person she loved, and now she will be with the person who for 10 years has loved her. Because in other words, she feels the man that she gave up everything for no longer loves her, is cheating on her, and she sacrificed everything for him. Because that is like the big thing. She was not rescued from Russia. She was in love with John Denman. And she gave up this career because he didn't like her being the center of attention. So she gave up her entire career and life, et cetera. And I mean, again, there was a revolution, but she gave all of this up for her intense love for her husband. And now he essentially has become this boring person who ignores her and is now cheating on her. If that's what's left, I guess she's going to, you know, she sacrificed enough. She'll go and go to the person who loves her. It's really nihilistic in like a lot of ways.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, very, dare I say, Russian. <laughs> but, well, um right. But it also explains, and and we have sort of left this until now, even though we get our explanation of that lacquer screen pretty early on, actually, in the story, like soon after the intrigue around it is set up. But the import of it doesn't really hit us, I think, until this moment, which is why it makes sense not to talk about it until now. But... That lacquer screen, which is you know fancy and just doesn't match any of the other furniture in the room, um, is something that the Denmans bought when they had just been married and were sort of in the first bloom, the first full flush of their love together.
1: Lived in that cottage.
0: And lived in that cottage, the one that we see over the rubbish heap when they were still sort of living the quote-unquote simple life and potentially even unconventional life. And it is the fact that they once had this great love that seems to have dwindled or decayed or what have you into such a cheap, trite story, right? Of a bored wife and a straying husband who's cheating on her with this young girl who seems perfectly nice, but not particularly talented or interesting. It's the loss of that love that they had that is so destructive to Anna Denman. I mean, she's basically acting like her life is over because she she lost what she once so valued. She
1: valued it more than she valued her own personhood.
0: The love that existed between herself yeah. and her husband. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's funny and I actually appreciate how unusual this is because the analogy is made to that lacquer screen, right? And here's what she says about it. She says, "We bought that screen with more than money, with love, for love of it because it was beautiful and unique. We went without other things, things we needed and missed." These other Chinese pieces my husband speaks of, because her husband, who's now Mr. Conventional, is saying, I agree, this this lacquer screen doesn't fit in the room, and we should buy other things with all the money we now have to match it so that the room is designed Conventionally, and it doesn't stick out as this oddity. She says, you know, we should buy those with money only. We should not pay away anything of ourselves. And that's why she refuses to do that because to her, that screen and that screen only signifies this earlier time. But it's not, it's not a very healthy analogy, you know, like I don't, no. it's not like Christie's not celebrating, oh yes, and they had this simpler, wonderful love. It's such a shame that that has fallen away. I don't think we're meant to believe, and certainly I didn't feel this way as a reader, that Mrs. Denman is thinking about this in... A healthy way or even like a sane way, you know?
1: Well, I think that at this point in their relationship, Mrs. Denman is the lacquer screen.
0: Yeah, she doesn't fit anymore.
1: (laughs) No, and surrounding her by other objects is not going to help her fit. It's that she's always going to be this exotic lacquer screen, except you took her out of her surroundings and you put her in English country house. And now you're saying that it doesn't fit in the... Lifestyle that you currently want.
0: Right. And she doesn't fit because... The only thing that made her fit, and it did make her fit at one time, was this great love that existed between right. herself and her husband, and that's clearly just done. It's over.
1: Right. It's really tragic.
0: It's oh, it's it's horribly tragic, and Mr. Satterthwaite is understandably very perturbed about what he's heard here. So he's sitting in the moonlight and he's debating what he should do, if anything. And at one point he sees Anna walking by with Oronoff, who's in his fancy dress here, because they're they're all, of course, in fancy dress, but he second guesses it because. Oranoff is sort of dressed up as Harlequin and a, and Mr. Quinn obviously was dancing as Harlequin, so maybe that was actually Mr. Quinn who she was with instead. He's he's very confused. And then it becomes clear that he was initially mistaken and that must have been Mr. Quinn who she was with because Prince Ornoff himself comes up to him and can't find Anna anywhere and he's very distressed because she didn't show up when she said she was going to, which is every reader's cue to say uh-oh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs>
1: and Mister Satterthwaite's cue to say, "Uh oh," because we're in the world as it actually is, as much as that exists here.
0: Well, it's funny you because know. you, I just the way that you just put it, Catherine, where you said, "If she's the lacquer screen surrounding her by other objects, isn't going to solve the problem." And when she was saying, "Oh, I'll just go off with Prince Oranoff, the man who has loved me for this many years," that's sort of what she is proposing to do. Right. And I think we should know that that is a doomed proposition. In the world as it actually is, that is not going to fly.
1: No. And it's also that Mr. Quinn and Anna have essentially both given be careful what you wish for speeches within like the last few hours. Mm. And Mr. Satterthwaite starts to panic. And then when they come across a housemaid who says that uh, she saw Anna walk down the lane alone, i.e. not with anybody, mm. despite what Satterthwaite saw, Mr. Satterthwaite at this point is trying to take shallow breaths. And Oranoff then tells a story about how in pre-revolutionary Russia, Anna had always longed to have the perfect Harlequin in the ballet. But one of the things that she always thought you really needed to get the Harlequin Columbine relationship right was to have a dancer playing Harlequin who was essentially someone who wasn't really there. And at this point, Sadovsky essentially makes them go at full sprint down Harlequin's lane. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. It's all kind of coming to a head here, and all of our suspicions as to Mr. Quinn and who or what he might be are, I think, going to be sort of answered in the uh, the final page of yeah. the story. So, first things first, though, let's figure out what's going on in the story at hand. They are on the rubbish heap at the end of Lover's Lane, sprawled across it with open arms is anna denman and she is dead and she has killed very
1: gracefully dead though
0: yes very very gracefully dead a bit perhaps like that fallen swallow from the happy Uh prince and then sure enough right around that rubbish heap mr satterthwaite finds mr quinn and these two have a confrontation and oh boy is it weird even for a Mr. Quinn story, and I think that we are just going to have to read it out. So first, Mr. Satterthwaite accuses Mr. Quinn of essentially murdering Anna, to which Mr. Quinn more or less shrugs and notes that everyone passes down lover's lane at one point or another. He he sort of acts as if this end of Anna... Killing herself on the rubbish heap was inevitable. He then uh, starts just talking again very symbolically and metaphysically here. Here's what Christie writes. Mr. Satterthwaite looked at him uncomprehendingly for a minute or two. Then he began suddenly to quiver all over like an aspen leaf. What is this place? He whispered. What is this place? I told you earlier today. It is my lane. "'A lover's lane,' murmured Mr. Satterthwaite, "'and people pass along it. "'Most people, sooner or later, "'and at the end of it, what do they find?' "'Mr. Quinn smiled. "'His voice was very gentle. "'He pointed at the ruined cottage above them. "'The house of their dreams or a rubbish heap, who shall say?' "'Mr. Satterthwaite looked up at him suddenly. "'A wild rebellion surged over him. "'He felt cheated, defrauded. "'But I,' his voice shook, "'I have never passed down your lane.' And do you regret? Mr. Satterthwaite quailed. Mr. Quinn seemed to have loomed to enormous proportions. Mr. Satterthwaite had a vista of something at once menacing and terrifying. Joy, sorrow, despair. And his comfortable little soul shrank back, appalled. Do you regret? Mr. Quinn repeated his question. There was something terrible about him. No, Mr. Satterthwaite stammered. No. And then suddenly he rallied. But I see things, he cried. I may have been only a looker on at life, but I see things that other people do not. You said so yourself, Mister Quinn. But Mister Quinn had vanished. And that it's is the, the end.
1: end of the mysterious Mister Quinn. What just happened, Catherine? Well, okay. I think we could all take a big, deep breath first of all, Oof. because we all need it at this point. <laughs> Mr. Quinn, murderer, apparently. I think that this is where it behooves us to look back at that Happy Prince quote, right? hmm Because there are a million ways to interpret this, but the easiest way to interpret this essentially is that Mr. Quinn is it's less fight club and more that Mr. Quinn is some sort of angel. That's not to dismiss other readings of it, but especially if you're looking back to the quote of the Happy Prince, the thing that makes the most sense of what's happening here is that he is some sort of interlocutor from the beyond, right?
0: Right, because it's an angel in that story right who is yeah
1: it is an angel who brings the bring sparrow and the lead heart to God to God yeah.
0: yeah no he's I mean as I was reading by the way I feel like uh perhaps a more um accurate way to read Mr Quinn's line do you regret is like do you regret <laughs> it's like I imagine him just being <laughs> just a terrible enormous like sure angel just at that point it's just a term of art but supernatural being of gargantuan proportions and significance right you know
1: right no i think that that's absolutely right and i mean we've had a hint of it all along right and he has said so many times even when he's not walking off of a cliff i am here for a specific reason so you know he's using mr quinn essentially as his emissary right has his human emissary and it also explains in a lot of ways why only certain people seem to really notice him and it's not that he's not there it's that he only is noticed by the people who need to see him
0: right he is in fact there he's just not a normal person like he doesn't he's not follow the rules
1: in a normal way yeah yeah,
0: yeah. no absolutely and, and folded into that could be the idea that he represents mr Satterthwaite's ability to be that's sort of an interlocutor for people, the kind of priest confessor role that we talk about with right. Papa Poirot. Even you know, this is a role that we see other people filling as well. But you know, as I always go on about how you know we need in a Mister Quinn story, Mister Satterthwaite complaining about how he's only been an observer in life, but he has this ability to see things, and with Mister Quinn's help, to make things happen, to fix things, or bring people together, or right wrongs perhaps mr quinn just represents that ability in him which is a sort of divine ability or superhuman ability that some people do possess you know right it's just a uh, magical <laughs> way of of looking at something well, that doesn't I necessarily mean, it, have to be perceived as magical mm, you know right
1: and for a writer who is not generally perceived to be particularly religious what you do get here is the idea that sat is a man of the cloth mm-hmm. right He's celibate. He serves as a confessor to a lot of people. You know, he speaks essentially to something beyond human knowledge and Mr. Quinn. And you have Mr. Quinn as something from beyond this plane of existence, right? So in a weird, weird way, it turns out these are more religious tinged than you would have thought.
0: I 100% agree. But I think what's so fascinating, too, is... So many of these Mr. Quinn stories have also dealt, some more directly than others, with the notion of suicide.
1: Yeah, well, a lot of the
0: past. Yeah, and and that is something that does not square with the very Christian-tinged religiosity, I think, of especially what we're getting here at the end of this story. And I think this story is at the very least implying that, sure, we could say Mr. Quinn, this angelic interlocutor, whatever he is, had a role in Mrs. Denman's demise. But she killed herself. She lost the will to go on. And even though this rubbish heap is symbolic and perhaps there wasn't an actual distance to fall, she wanted to die and she died. So she, you know, she might not have actually jumped off of a cliff onto a rubbish heap, but she did die at her own hand, or or at least that was what she wanted to have happen. And it seems to have happened at the end of the story. And this is going to be contradicted by the fact that we do have a Mr. Quinn story that appears later in the chronology of Mr. Quinn. So just for a second on these two other Mr. Quinn short stories that we have yet to cover, one of them is just a very kind of standard, so to speak. No Mr. Quinn story is standard, but it's a pretty normal Mr. Quinn story that fits within the chronology of this collection. It just happened to have not been collected within the stories. The second one was written in the 70s and Mr. Quinn and Mr. Satterthwaite discuss the events that happened at the end of this story in that story from the 70s. So, it's very much stating the fact that Mr. Satterthwaite survived the events of this story, but right. I would posit that at least to me as a reader, it feels as though Mr. Satterthwaite is also standing at the end of Lover's Lane here on the precipice of a rubbish heap. And He is railing to the heavens about his life, and to me it feels like Mr. Satterthwaite too is at an end here of whatever this mortal version of his life is, which also, you know, just this notion of death not necessarily being the end— is something that we also come across in these Mr. Quinn stories. It just, it feels like an an end in every sense to me. And And I, but I realize that's, that's an interpretation. No,
1: but there's also, there's also a parallel here that Mr. Satterthwaite is the swallow. That Mr. Satterthwaite, Yeah, the swallow's dead. Great. Yeah. I mean, Mr. Satterthwaite, everybody else in his flock went on their merry ways and he got left behind. And he gets to become this observer and this, you know, helper- of the people and the ultimate outcome is that of that is death.
0: It's the ultimate outcome is death, but also absolution,
1: <laughs> right? And glorification, and glorification. Heaven. <laughs> yeah. That
0: he's, he is, he is yeah. actually the most valuable thing. And that is kind of the ultimate answer to this complaint that has just been inserted into every story to the point where I insisted on making fun of it each time. I think the ultimate answer to Mr. Satterthwaite's perennial, what about me? You know, why didn't I ever get to live is like, dude, you're you lived better than anyone. You're good believe me you're good yeah. to go you did it
1: yeah you not only got to go to Doveview and, <laughs> and wherever else but you know you helped all of these people en route to those places
0: absolutely it's a terrible and i mean that in, in terms of like awe inspiring sort of an ending but also perhaps a triumphant ending i mean there is a lot going on in this la- and it really all happens in a page It gets crazy real, real quick. And we just, it it feels like like we jump off the cliff at the end of the story. It's like we're jumping off the cliff. You know,
1: we jump off the cliff and it's a rubbish heap. The trade off right for Mr. Quinn is like his great ability to be observant and helpful. I mean, it's it's a really odd ending. And again, I don't think that when we started reading these, I thought it was going to end in this weirdly religious place. But here we are.
0: I always remembered this ending because it was so weird. I always knew that we were heading here, but I think having read these as closely as we have and having treasured them as much as as much as we do in this close reading, I'm impressed by the way that she worked her way up to this ending because, you know, The Man from the Sea is truly a standout story within this collection. And that is the one where <laughs> Mr. Quinn disappears over a cliff. We're constantly pondering over a cliff. And there are so many times the characters are looking out into the great beyond and the open. And, you know, it, it goes hand in hand with the fact that Mr. Satterthwaite is usually vacationing in spots that are given to that sort of open air pondering, like it all fits together. It's all done very well. And I think even though these stories are crazy pants, they're not haphazard and they are written with care. They're just very unusual for Christie and very different from what else she was writing. Usually her care, um, you can see in the crafting of the puzzle mystery, right? Here she's just doing something very different, but also doing it well and skillfully.
1: Oh, of course. And also let us never forget, she only wrote these when she wanted to.
0: We, and we've talked about this so many times, just the fact that we can feel some of the turmoil in her personal life coming through in these stories. And that's all speculation, and it'll never be anything but that. But they feel so personal, these stories.
1: Yeah, because it is pulling at some spiritual level that you don't necessarily get if there are a million moving puzzle parts.
0: Right. And there's just a sort of thematic resonance throughout in terms of heartbreak and... <laughs> despair and how to overcome that or at least how to negotiate it in some sort of a constructive way how to figure out the messy (laughs) the messy pursuit of living one's life amidst all of the heartbreak and disappointment that comes along the way i think we actually do get those themes often in the puzzle mysteries we do because there's so much going on in them but there's a preoccupation with it in this collection that we certainly don't get in other stories. So God, I just, I really, I love the mysterious Mr. Quinn. That's all there is to say.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't think that I went into this endeavor expecting that at least from my memory. And yeah, I'm sad this collection is over.
0: i'm sad it's over but again we have still got two more and we're gonna save them i think for a little bit especially because that last one written in the 70s feels very different as many of Christie's writings from the 70s do it will be fascinating to contrast it with these stories but i like that we have two more mr quinn stories to look forward to uh, yeah. in the future of our podcasting so i think we'll be taking a little break from mr quinn for the time being
1: well we'll miss him in that interim
0: Absolutely. But he's always there. Isn't he, Catherine?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Now you're going to give me like the willies, and I'm not going to be able to go to sleep at night.
0: <laughs> well, and boy, and by the way, we certainly did get my other rule of a Mr. Quinn story of comparing him to Harlequin in some way. Didn't we? But
1: man, very literally. <laughs> so,
0: all right, well, that is the mysterious of Mr. Quinn in our final story of the collection, Harlequin's lane. Join us next time for a novel episode very exciting. We are covering Taken at the Flood, a Poirot novel. Exciting. We are actually quite shockingly close to the 50s, so we are moving right along in our review of the novels. And we, of course, would love to hear from you. We will be covering in our next Patreon episode the Mary Westmacott novel, Unfinished Portrait, which will be touching on a lot of the themes that we actually discussed in this episode, because Christy did, of course, put a lot of herself in those Mary Westmacott novels. So if you're interested in continuing that conversation check us out on patreon www.patreon.com slash all about agatha you can always email us at all about the dame at gmail.com we are on twitter at all about the dame katherine is at robcat our facebook page is all about agatha and our instagram handle is at all about agatha and please take a moment to rate and review if you haven't done so already it really helps other people find the podcast and we'll see you next time bye
1: bye